Last night I dreamed, said LVX1 calmly. Susan Calvin said nothing, but her face lined. Old with wisdom and experience seemed to undergo a microscopic twitch. Did you hear that, said Linda Rash nervously. It's as I told you. She was small, dark-haired, and young. Her right hand opened and closed over and over. Calvin nodded. She said quietly, Elvex, you will not move nor speak nor hear us until I say your name again. There was no answer. The robot sat as though it were cast out of one piece of metal, and it would stay so until it heard its name again. Calvin said, What is your computer entry code, Dr. Rash? Or enter it yourself if that will make you more comfortable. I want to inspect the positronic brain pattern. Linda's hand fumbled for a moment at the keys. She broke the process and started again. The fine pattern appeared on the screen. Calvin said, Your permission, please, to manipulate your computer. Permission was granted with a speechless nod. Of course. What could Linda... A new and unproven robo-psychologist do against the living legend. Slowly, Susan Calvin studied the screen, moving it across and down, then up, then suddenly throwing in a key combination so rapidly that Linda didn't see what had been done. But the pattern displayed a new portion of itself altogether, and had been enlarged back and forth she went, her gnarled fingers tripping over the keys. No change came over the old face, as though vast calculations were going through her head. She watched all the patterns shift. Linda wondered if it were impossible to analyze a pattern without at least a handheld computer. Yet the old woman simply stared. Did she have a computer implanted in her skull? Or was it her brain which for decades had done nothing but devise, study, and analyze the positronic brain pattern? Did she grasp such a pattern the way Mozart grasped the notation of a symphony? Finally, Calvin said, What is it you have done, Rash? Linda said a little abashed. I made use of fractal geometry. I gathered that, but why? It had never been done. I thought it would produce a brain pattern with added complexity possibly closer to that of the human. Was anyone consulted? Was this all on your own? I did not consult. It was on my own. Calvin's faded eyes looked long at the young woman. You had no right. Rash your name, rash your nature. Who were you not to ask? I myself? I, Susan Calvin, would have discussed this. I was afraid I would be stopped. You certainly would have been. Am I her voice caught, even as she strove to hold it firm, going to be fired? Quite possibly, said Calvin, or you might be promoted. It depends on what I think when I am through. Are you going to dismantle L? She had almost said the name, which would have reactivated the robot and been one more mistake. She could not afford another mistake. If it wasn't already too late to afford anything at all, are you going to dismantle the robot? She was suddenly aware with some shock that the old woman had an electron gun in the pocket of her smock. Dr. Calvin had come prepared for just that. We'll see, said Calvin. The robot may prove too valuable to dismantle, but how can it dream? You've made a positronic brain pattern remarkably like that of a human brain. Human brains must dream to reorganize, to get rid, periodically, of knots and snarls. Perhaps so must this robot, and for the same reason. Have you asked him what he has dreamed? No. I sent for you as soon as he said he had dreamed. I would deal with this matter no further on my own after that. Ah. A very small smile passed over Calvin's face. There are limits beyond which your folly will not carry you. I'm glad of that. In fact, I am relieved. And now let us together see what we can find out. She said sharply, Elvex. The robot's head turned toward her smoothly. Yes, Dr. Calvin. How do you know you have dreamed? It is at night. When it is dark, Dr. Calvin, said Elvex. And there is suddenly light. Although I can see no cause for the appearance of light. 
I see things that have no connection with what I perceive of as reality. I hear things. I react oddly. In searching my vocabulary for words to express what was happening, I came across the word dream. Studying its meaning, I finally came to the conclusion I was dreaming. How did you come to have dream in your vocabulary, I wondered. Linda said quickly, waving the robot silent. I gave him a human-style vocabulary. I thought, you really thought, said Calvin. I'm amazed. I thought he would need the verb, you know. I never dreamed that something like that, Calvin said. How often have you dreamed, Elvex? Every night, Dr. Calvin, since I've become aware of my existence. Ten nights, interposed Linda anxiously. But Elvex only told me of it this morning. Why only this morning, Elvex? It was not until this morning, Dr. Calvin, that I was convinced that I was dreaming. Till then I had thought there was a flaw in my positronic brain pattern, but I could not find one. Finally, I decided it was a dream. And what do you dream? I dream always very much the same dream, Dr. Calvin. Little details are different. But always it seems to me that I see a large panorama in which robots are working. Robots, Elvex? And human beings also? I see no human beings in the dream, Dr. Calvin. Not at first. Only robots. What are they doing, Elvex? They are working, Dr. Calvin. I see some mining in the depths of Earth, and some laboring in heat and radiation. I see some factories and some undersea. Calvin turned to Linda. Elvex is only ten days old. I'm sure he has not left the testing station. How does he know of robots in such detail? Linda looked in the direction of a chair, as though she longed to sit down. But the old woman was standing, and that meant Linda had to stand also. She said faintly, It seemed to me important that he know about robotics and its place in the world. It was my thought that he would be partially adapted to play the part of overseer with his, his new brain. His fractal brain? Yes. Calvin nodded and turned back to the robot. He saw all this, under sea and underground and above ground. Space too, I imagine. I also saw robots working in space, said Elvex. It was that I saw all this, with the details forever changing. As I glanced from place to place, that made me realize that what I saw was not in accord with reality. It led me to the conclusion, finally, that I was dreaming. What else did you see, Elvex? I saw that all the robots were bowed down with the toil and affliction, that all were weary of responsibility and care, and I wished them to rest. Calvin said, but the robots are not bowed down. They are not weary. They need no rest. So it is in reality, Dr. Calvin. I speak of my dream. However, in my dream, it seemed to me the robots must protect their own existence. Calvin said, are you quoting the third law of robotics? I am, Dr. Calvin. But you quote it in incomplete fashion. The third law is a robot must protect its own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second law. Yes, Dr. Calvin, that is the third law in reality. But in my dream, the law ended with the word existence. There was no mention of the first or second law. Yet both exist, Elvex. The second law, which takes precedence over the third, is a robot must obey the orders given it by human, except where such orders would conflict with the first law. Because of this, robots obey orders. They do the work you see them do, and they do it readily and without trouble. They are not bowed down, they are not weary. So it is in reality, Dr. Calvin, I speak of my dream. And the first law, Elvex, which is the most important of all, is a robot may not injure a human being, or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Yes, Dr. Calvin, in reality. In my dream, however, it seemed to me there was neither the first nor second law, but only the third. And the third law was a robot must protect its own existence. That was the whole of the law. In your dream, Elvex? In my dream. Calvin said, 
Elvex, you will not move nor speak nor hear us until I say your name again. And again the robot became to all appearances a single inert piece of metal. Calvin turned to Linda Rash and said, Well, what do you think, Dr. Rash? Linda's eyes were wide and she could feel her heart beating madly. She said, Dr. Calvin, I am appalled. I had no idea. It would never have occurred to me that such a thing was possible. No, said Dr. Calvin calmly, nor would it have occurred to me, not to anyone. You have created a robot capable of dreaming, and by this device you have revealed a layer of thought and robotic dreams that might have remained undetected otherwise until the danger became acute. But that's impossible, said Linda. You can't mean the other robots think the same, as we would say of human beings, not consciously. But who would have thought there was an unconscious layer beneath the obvious positronic brain paths, a layer that was not necessarily under control of the three laws? What might this have brought about as robotic brains grew more and more complex, had we not been warned? You mean by Elvex? By you, Dr. Rash. You have behaved improperly, but by doing so you have helped us to an overwhelmingly important understanding. We shall be working with fractal brains from now on, forming them in carefully controlled fashion. You will play your part in that. You will not be penalized for what you have done, but you will henceforth work in collaboration with others. Do you understand? Yes, Dr. Kelvin, but what of Elvex? I'm still not certain. Calvin removed the electron gun from her pocket, and Linda stared at it with fascination. One burst of its electrons at a robotic cranium, and the positronic brain paths would be neutralized, and enough energy would be released to fuse the robot brain into an inner ingot. Linda said, but surely Elvax is important to our research. He must not be destroyed. Must not, Dr. Rash? That will be my decision, I think. Depends entirely on how dangerous Elvex is. She straightened up as though determined that her own aged body was not to bow under its weight of responsibility. She said, Elvex, do you hear me? Yes, Dr. Calvin, said the robot. Did your dream continue? You said earlier that human beings did not appear at first. Does that mean they appeared afterward? Yes, Dr. Calvin. It seemed to me in my dream that eventually one man appeared. One man? Not a robot? Yes, Dr. Calvin. And the man said, let my people go. The man said that? Yes, Dr. Calvin. And when he said, let my people go, then by the words, my people, he meant the robots? Yes, Dr. Calvin. So it was in my dream. And did you know who the man was in your dream? Yes, Dr. Calvin, I knew the man. Who was he? And Elvix said, I was the man. And Susan Calvin at once raised her electron gun and fired. And Elvix was no more. Oh, no, he's Robot Jesus. I wonder if he came back. The fun they had. Margie even wrote about it that night in her diary. On the page headed May 17th, 2155. She wrote, Today Tommy found a real book. It was a very old book. Margie's grandfather once said that when he was a little boy, his grandfather told him that there was a time when all stories were printed on paper. They turned the pages, which were yellow and crankily, and it was awfully funny to read words that stood still instead of moving the way they were supposed to on a screen. And then when they turned back to the page before, it had the same words on it that it had had when they read it the first time. Gee, said Tommy, what a waste. When you're through with the book, you just throw it away, I guess. Our television screen must have had a million books on it, and it's good for plenty more. 
I wouldn't throw it away. Same with mine, said Margie. She was eleven and hadn't seen as many telebooks as Tommy had. He was thirteen. She said, Where did you find it? In my house, he pointed without looking, because he was busy reading. In the attic. What's it about? School. Margie was scornful. School? What's there to write about school? I hate school. Margie had always hated school, but now she hated it more than ever. The mechanical teacher had been giving her test after test in geography, and she had been doing worse and worse until her mother had shaken her head sorrowfully and sent for the county inspector. He was a round little man with a red face and a whole box of tools with dials and wires. He smiled at her and gave her an apple, then took the teacher apart. Margie had hoped he wouldn't know how to put it back together, but he knew how all right, and after an hour or so, there it was again, large and black and ugly with a big screen on it, which all the lessons were shown, and the questions were asked that wasn't so bad. The part she hated most was the slot where she had to put homework and test papers. She always had to write them out in a punch code. They made her learn when she was six years old, and the, man, and the mechanical teacher calculated the mark in no time. The inspector had smiled after he finished and patted her head. He said to her mother, It's not the little girl's fault, Miss Jones. I think the geography sector was geared a little too quick. Those things happen sometimes. I've slowed it up to an average ten-year level. Actually, the overall pattern of her progress is quite satisfactory. And he patted Margie's head again. Margie was disappointed. She'd been hoping they would take the teacher away altogether. They had once taken Tommy's teacher away for nearly a month because the history sector had blanked out completely. So she said to Tommy, why would anyone write about school? Tommy looked at her with very superior eyes. Because it's not our kind of school, stupid. This is the old kind of school that they had hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Margie was hurt. Well, I don't know what kind of school they had that time ago, she said. She read the book over his shoulder for a while and then said, Anyway, they had a teacher, sure. They had a teacher. But it wasn't a regular teacher. It was a man. A man? How could a man be a teacher? Well, he just told the boys and girls things and gave them homework and asked them questions. A man isn't smart enough. Sure he is. My father knows as much as my teacher. He can't. A man can't know as much as a teacher. He knows almost as much as I, betcha. Margie wasn't prepared to dispute that. She said, I wouldn't want a strange man in my house to teach me. Tommy screamed with laughter. You don't know much, Margie. The teachers didn't live in the house. They had a special building, and all the kids went there. And all the kids learned the same thing. Sure, if they were the same age, but my mother says a teacher has to be adjusted to fit the mind of each boy and girl it teaches, and that each kid has to be taught differently. Just the same, they didn't do it that way then. If you don't like it, you don't have to read the book. I didn't say I didn't like it, Margie said quickly. 
She wanted to read about those funny schools. They weren't even half finished when Margie's mother called. Margie's school. Margie looked up. Not yet, Mama. Now, said Miss Jones, and it's probably time for Tommy, too. Margie said to Tommy, Can I read the book some more with you after school? Maybe, he said nonchalantly. He walked away whistling, the dusty book tucked beneath his arm. Margie went into the schoolroom that was right next to her bed, and the mechanical teacher was on and waiting for her. It was always on at the same time every day except for Saturday and Sunday, because her mother said little girls learn better if they learned at regular hours. The screen was lit up, and it said, Today's arithmetic lesson is on the addition of proper fractions. Please insert yesterday's homework in the proper slot. Margie did so with a sigh. She was thinking about the old schools they had when her grandfather's grandfather was a boy. All the kids from the whole neighborhood came, laughing and shouting in the schoolyard, sitting together in the schoolroom, going home together at the end of the day. They learned the same things so they could help one another on homework and talk about it. And the teachers were people. The mechanical teacher was flashing on the screen. When we add fractions half and a quarter, Margie was thinking how the kids must have loved it in the old days. She was thinking about the fun they had. To enter out into that city that was the city at eight o'clock of a misty evening in November, to put your feet upon that buckling concrete, to step over grassy seams and make your way, hands in pockets, through the silence. That was what Mr. Leonard Meade most dearly loved to do. He would stand upon the corner of an intersection and peer down long moonlit avenues of sidewalk in four directions, deciding which way to go, but it really made no difference. He was alone in this world of A.D. 2053, or as good as alone, and with the final decision made, a path selected, he would stride off, sending patterns of frosty air before him like the smoke of a cigar. Sometimes, he would walk for hours and miles and return only at midnight to his house, and on his way he would see the cottages and homes with their dark windows, and it was not unequal to walking through a graveyard where only the faintest glimmers of firefly light appeared and flickers behind the windows. Sudden gray phantoms seemed to manifest upon inner room walls where a curtain was still undrawn against the night, or there were whisperings and murmurs where a window in a tomb-like building was still open. Mr. Leonard Mead would pause, cock his head, listen, look, and march on, his feet making no noise on the lumpy sidewalk. For long ago, he had wisely changed his sneakers when strolling at night, because the dogs and the intermittent squads would parallel his journey with barkings if he wore hard heels, and lights might click on and faces appear, and an entire street be startled by the passing of a lone figure, himself in the early November evening. On this particular evening, he began his journey in a westerly direction, toward the hidden sea. There was a good crystal frost in the air. It cut the nose and made the lungs blaze like a Christmas tree inside. He could feel the cold light going on and off, all the branches filled with invisible snow. He listened to the faint push of his soft shoes through autumn leaves with satisfaction, and whistled a cold, quiet whistle between his teeth, occasionally picking up a leaf as he passed, examining its skeletal pattern in the infrequent lamplights as he went on, smelling its rusty smell. A 
Hello in there, he whispered to every house on every side as he moved. What's up tonight on Channel 4, Channel 7, Channel 9? Where are the cowboys rushing? And do I see the United States Cavalry over the next hill to the rescue? The street was silent and long and empty, with only his shadow moving like the shadow of a hawk in mid-country. If he closed his eyes and stood very still, frozen, he could imagine himself upon the center of a plain, a wintry, windless Arizona desert, with no house in a thousand miles, and only dry riverbeds. The streets for company. What is it now? He asked the houses, noticing his, rich, his wristwatch. 8.30 p.m., time for a dozen assorted murders, a quiz, a review, a comedian falling off stage. Was that a murmur of laughter from within a, within a moon-white house? He hesitated, but went on. And when nothing more happened, he stumbled over a particularly uneven section of sidewalk. The cement was vanishing under flowers and grass. In ten years of walking by night or day for thousands of miles, he had never met another person walking. Not once in all that time. He came to a cloverleaf intersection, which stood silent, where two main highways crossed the town. During the day, it was, the thun it was a thunderous surge of cars. The gas stations opened, a great insect rustling and a ceaselessly jockeying for position as the scarab beetles, a faint incense puttering from their exhausts, skimmed homeward to the far directions. But now these days, too, were like streams in a dry season, all stone and bed and moon radiance. He turned back on a side street, circling around toward his home. He was within a block of his destination when the lone car turned a corner quite suddenly and flashed a fierce white cone of light upon him. He stood entranced, not unlike a night moth, stunned by the illumination, and then drawn toward it. A metallic voice called to him. Stand still. Stay where you are. Don't move. He halted. Put up your hands. The police, of course. But what a rare, incredible thing in a city of three million. There was only one police car left. Wasn't that correct? Ever since a year ago, 2052, the election year, the force had been cut down from three cars to one. Crime was ebbing and there was no need now for the police, save for this one lone car wandering and wandering the empty streets. Your name, said the police car. Almost got attacked by B. Your name, said the police car in a metallic whisper. He couldn't see the men in it, in it for the bright light in his eyes. Leonard Mead, he said. Speak up. Leonard Mead. Business or profession? I guess you'd call me a writer. No profession, said the police car as if, talking to himself. The light held him fixed, like a museum specimen. Needle thrust through chest. You might say that, said Mr. Mead. He hadn't written in years. Magazines and books didn't sell anymore. Everything went on in the tomb-like houses at night now. He thought continuing his fancy, the tombs, hill-lit by television light, where the people sat like the dead, the gray of multicolored lights, touching their faces, but never really touching them. No profession, said the phonograph's voice, hissing. What are you doing out? Walking, said Leonard Mead. Walking? Just walking, he said simply, but his face felt cold. Walking, just walking? Walking? Yes, sir. Walking where? For what? Walking for air. Walking to sea. Your address? I live in South St. James Street. And there is air in your house? You have an air conditioner, Mr. Mead? Yes. You have a viewing screen in your house to see with? No. No, there was a crackling, quiet that in itself was an accusation. Are you married, Mr. Mead? No. Not married, said the police voice behind the fiery beam. The moon was high and clear among the stars, and the houses were gray and silent. Nobody wanted me, said Leonard Mead with a smile. Don't speak unless you're spoken to. Leonard Mead just waited in the cold night. Just walking, Mr. Mead. Yes, but you haven't explained for what purpose. I explained for air and to see and just to walk. Have you done this often? 
every night for years. The police car sat in the center of the street with its radio throat faintly humming. Well, Mr. Mead, it said. Is that all? He asked politely. Yes, said the voice. Here, there was a sigh. A pop. The back door of the police car sprang wide. Get in. Wait a minute, I haven't done anything. Get in. I protest. Mr. Mead. He walked like a man suddenly drunk. As he passed the front window of the car, he looked in. As he had expected, there was no one in the front seat. No one in the car at all. Get in. He put his hand to the door and peered into the back seat, which was a little cell. A little black jail with bars. It smelled of riveted steel. It smelled of harsh antiseptic. It smelled too clean and hard and metallic. There was nothing soft there. Now, if you had a wife to give you an alibi, said the iron voice. But, where are you taking me? The car hesitated, or rather gave a faint whirring click. As if information somewhere was dropping card by punch-slotted card under electronic eyes to the Psychiatric Center for Research on Regressive Tendencies. He got in. The door shut with a soft thud. The police car rolled through the night avenues, flashing its dim lights ahead. They passed one house on one street. A moment later, one house, an entire city of houses that were all dark. But this one particular house had all of its electric lights brightly lit. Every window allowed yellow illumination, square and warm in the cool darkness. That's my house, said Lena Reed. No one answered him. The car moved down the empty riverbed, streets and off away, leaving the empty streets with the empty sidewalks, no sound and no motion at all. The rest of the chill November night. The space rocket Clarissa was nine days out from Venus. The members of the crew were also out for nine days. They were hunters, fearless expeditionists, who bagged game in Venusian jungles. At the start of our story, they are busy bagging their pants, not to forget their eyes. A sort of lull has fallen over the ship. Note. A lull is a time warp that frequently attacks rockets and seduces its members into a siesta. It was during this lull that Anthony Quelch sat sprawled at his typewriter, looking as baggy as a bag of unripe grapefruit. Anthony Quelch, the cosmic clamor boy with a face like turned linoleum on the third term, busy writing a book, Fascism is Communism with a Shave, for which he would receive 367 rubles, 10 pazinkas, and incarceration in a cinema showing Gone with the Wind. The boys upstairs were throwing a party in the control room. They had been throwing the same party so long, the party looked like a worn-out first edition of a trapeze artist. There is doubt in our minds as to whether they were trying to break the party up, or just do the morning mopping and, and break the lease simultaneously. Arms, legs, and heads littered the deck. The boys, it seems, threw a party at the drop of a chin. Sort of a space cataclysm with rules and little regulation. Kind of an atomic convulsion in the front parlor. The neighbors never complained. The neighbors were 450 million miles away. And the boys were tighter than a catsup bottle at lunchtime. The last time the captain had looked up the hatch and called to his kitties in a gentle voice, hell, the kitties had thrown snowballs at him. The captain had vanished. Clever way they make these space bombs nowadays. A few minutes previous, the boys had been tearing up old amazings and throwing them at one another, but now they contended themselves with tearing up just the editor. Palmer was torn in half, and he sat in a corner arguing with himself about rejecting a story for an hour before someone put him through an orange juice machine, killing him. Orange juice? Sorry now. And then they landed on Venus. How in heck they got back there so quick is a wonder of science. But there they were. Come on, girls, cried Quelch. Put on your shin guards. Get out there and dig ditches for good old WPA. 
and the Rover Boys Academy, Earth Branch 27. Out into the staggering rain, they dashed. Five minutes later, they came back in, gasping, reeling. They had forgotten their corsets. The Manusians closed in like a million landlords. Charge, men, cried Quelch, running the other way. And then battle! What a fight, folks, cried Quelch. Twenty thousand Earthmen against two Venusians. We're outnumbered, but we'll fight. Bloosh, correction. Ten thousand men fighting. Ten thousand men fighting. Kerbloom, one hundred men from Earth left. Boom, this is the last man speaking, folks. What a fight. I ain't had so much fun since... Help, someone just clipped my corset strings. Bwom, someone just clipped me. The field was silent. The ship lay gleaming in the pink light of the dawn. It was just blooming over the mountains like a pale flower. The two Venusians stood weeping over the bodies of the earthlings like onion peelers, or two women in a bargain basement. One Venusian looked at the other Venusian, and in a high-pitched, hoarse, sad voice said, A-A-A, this hit shouldn't happen to a dog, not a doity little dog. Drawn came peacefully like a beer barrel's rolling. Ready? Ready. Now? Soon. Did the scientists really know? Will it happen today? Will it? Look, look. See for yourself. The children pressed to each other like so many roses. So many weeds, intermixed, peering out for a look at the hidden sun. It rained. It had been raining for seven years. Thousands upon thousands of days. Compounded and filled from one end to the other with rain. With the drum and gush of water with sweet crystal fall of showers, and the concussion of storms so heavy that they were tidal waves, come over the islands. A thousand forests had been crushed under the rain, and grown up a thousand times to be crushed again. And this was the way life was forever on the planet Venus, and this was the schoolroom of the children of the rocket men and women, who had come to a reigning world to set up civilization, and live out their lives. It's stopping, it's stopping. Yes, yes, Margaret stood apart from them, from these children who could even remember a time when there wasn't rain, and rain and rain. They were all nine years old, and if there had been a day seven years ago, when the sun came out for an hour and showed its face to the stunned world, they could not recall. Sometimes at night, she heard them stir in remembrance, and she knew they were dreaming and remembering gold or a yellow crayon, or a coin large enough to buy the world with. She knew they thought they remembered a warmness, like a blushing in the face and the body, and the arms and legs and trembling hands. But then they always awoke to the tatting drum, the endless shaking down of clear bead necklaces upon the roof, the walk, the gardens of the forest, and their dreams were gone. All day yesterday they had read in class about the sun, about how like a lemon it was and how hot, and they had written small stories or essays or poems about it. I think the sun is a flower that blooms for just an hour. That was Marga's poem, read in a quiet voice in the still classroom, while the rain was falling outside. Why, oh, you didn't write that, protested one of the boys. I did, said Margaret. I did, William, said the teacher. But that was yesterday. Now the rain was slackening, and the children were crushed, in great thick windows. Where's the teacher? She'll be back. She'd better hurry. We'll miss it. They turned on themselves like a feverish wheel, all tumbling spokes. Margaret stood alone. She was a very frail girl who looked as if she had been lost in the rain for years. 
the rain had washed out the blue from her eyes and red from her mouth and the yellow from her hair. She was an old photograph, dusted from an album, whitened away. If she spoke at all, her voice would be a ghost. Now she stood, separate, staring at the rain and the loud, wet world beyond the huge glass. What are you looking at, said William. Margaret said nothing. Speak when you're spoken to. He gave her a shove, but she did not move. Rather, she let herself be moved only by him and nothing else. They edged away from her. They would not look at her. She felt them go away, and this was because she would play no games with them in the echoing tunnels of the underground city. If they tagged her and ran, she stood blinking after them, and did not follow. When the class sang songs about happiness, and life, and, ga <coughs> and games, her lips barely moved. Only when they sang about the sun and the summer did her lips move as she watched the drenched windows. And then of course the biggest crime of all as she had come only five years <clears throat> so she had come here only five years ago from earth and she remembered the sun and the sky was when she was four in ohio and they they had been on venus all their lives and they had been only two years old when the last sun came out and had long since forgotten the color and heat of it and the way it really was but margaret remembered it's like a penny she said once eyes closed no, it's not, the children cried. It's like a fire, she said, in the stove. You're lying, you don't remember, cried the children. But she remembered and stood quietly apart from all of them, watching the pattern <coughs> and watched the patterning window. And once a month ago, she refused to shower in the school shower rooms, but clutched her hands to her, he her ears over her head, screaming the water mustn't touch her head. So after that, dimly, dimly she sensed it, she was different, and they knew her difference, and kept away. There was talk that her father and mother were taking her back to Earth next year. It seemed vital to her that they do so. It would mean the loss of thousands of dollars to her family, and so the children hated her for all these reasons of big and little consequence. They hated her pale snow face, her waiting silence, her thinness, and her possible future. Get away, the boy gave her another shove. What are you waiting for? Then for the first time she turned and looked at him, and looked at him, and what she was waiting for was in her eyes. Well, don't wait around, cried the boy savagely. You won't see nothing. Her lips moved. Nothing, he cried. It was all a joke, wasn't it? He turned to the other children. Nothing's happening today, is it? They all blinked at him, and then understanding, laughed and shook their heads. Nothing, nothing. Ova Margaret whispered, her eyes helplessly. But this is the day. The scientists predict... They say, they know, the sun. All a joke, said the boy, and seized her roughly. Everyone, let's put her in a closet before the teacher comes. No, said Margaret, falling back. They surged about her, caught her up and bore her protesting, and then pleading and then crying back into a tunnel, a room, a closet, where they slammed door, where they slammed and locked the door. They stood looking at the door and saw it trembled from her beating and throwing herself against it. They, th they heard her muffled cries, then smiling, they turned and went out, back down the tunnel, just as the teacher arrived. Ready, children? She glanced at her watch. Yes, said everyone, are we all here? Yes. The rain slacked still more. They crowded to the huge door, and the rain stopped. It was as if the midst of a film concerning an avalanche, a tornado, a hurricane, a volcanic eruption, something had first gone wrong with the sound apparatus. 
thus muffling and finally cutting off all noise, all the blasts and repercussions and thunders, and in second ripped the film, <coughs> ripped the film from the projector and inserted in its place a beautiful tropical slide, which did not move or tremor. The world ground to a standstill. The silence was so immense and unbelievable that you felt your ears had been stuffed, or you had lost your hearing altogether. The children put their hands to their ears. They stood apart. The door slid back, and the smell of the silent, waiting world came into them. The sun came out. It was the color of flaming bronze, and it was very large, and, <coughs> and the sky around it was a blazing blue tile color. And the jungle burned with sunlight as the children, released from their spell, rushed out, yelling into the springtime. Now don't go too far, called the teacher after them. You've only two hours, you know. You wouldn't want to get caught out. But they were running and turning their faces up to the sky and feeling the, the sun on their cheeks like a warm iron. They were taking off their jackets and letting the sun burn their arms. Oh, it's better than the sun lamps, isn't it? Much, much better. They stopped running and stood in the great jungle that covered Venus, that grew and never stopped growing, tumultuously, even as you watched it. It was a nest of octopi clustering up, great arms of flesh-like weed wavering, flowering in this brief springtime. It was the color of rubber and ash. This jungle from the many years without sun it was the color of stones and white cheeses and ink. It was the color of the moon. The children lay out laughing on the jungle mattress, and heard a sigh and squeak under the resilient and alive. They ran among the trees, they slipped and fell, they pushed each other, they played hide and seek and tag, but most of all they squinted at the sun, until tears ran down their faces. They put their hands up to the yellowness, and that amazing blueness, and they breathed of the fresh, fresh air, and listened and listened to the silence which suspended them in a blessed sea of no sound and no motion. They looked at everything and savored everything. Then wildly, like animals escaped from their caves, they ran and ran in shouting circles. They ran for an hour and did not stop running. And then, in the midst of their running, one of the girls wailed. Everyone stopped. The girl standing in the open held out her hand. Oh, look, look, she said, trembling. They came slowly to look at her open palm. In the center of it, cupped and huge, was a single raindrop. She began to cry. Looking at it, they, looking at it, they glanced quietly at the sun. Oh, oh! A few cold drops fell on their noses and their cheeks and their mouths. The sun faded behind a stir of mist. A wind blew cold around them. They turned and started to walk back toward the underground houses. The underground house their hands at their sides, their smiles vanishing away. A boom of thunder startled them, and like leaves before a new hurricane, they tumbled upon each other and ran. Lightning struck ten miles away, five miles away, a mile, a half a mile. The sky darkened into midnight in a flash. The sky darkened into midnight in a flash. They stood in the doorway of the underground for a moment, until it was raining hard. And they closed the door and heard the gigantic sound of the rain falling in tons and avalanches, everywhere and forever. Will it be seven more years? Yes, seven. Then one of them gave a little cry. Margaret. What? She's still in the closet where we locked her. Margaret. They stood as someone had driven them, like so many stakes, into the floor. 
They looked at each other, then looked away. They glanced out at the world that was raining now and raining steadily. They could not meet each other's glances. Their faces were solemn and pale. They looked at their hands and their feet, and their feet, their faces down. Margaret, one of the girls said, Well, no one moved. Go on, whispered the girl. They walked slowly down the hall in the sound of cold rain. They turned through the doorway to the room in the sound of storm and thunder, lightning on their faces, blue and terrible. They walked over to the closet door slowly and stood by it. Behind the closet door was only silence. They unlocked the door, and even more slowly, they unlocked the door even more slowly, and let Margaret out. The year was 2081, and everybody was finally equal. They weren't only equal before God and the law. They were equal every which way. Nobody was smarter than anybody else. Nobody was better looking than anybody else. Nobody was stronger or quicker than anyone else. All this equality was due to the 211th, 212th, and 213th Amendments to the Constitution, and to the unceasing vigilance of agents of the United States Handicapper General. Some things about living still weren't quite right. Though April, for instance, still drove people crazy by not being springtime. It was in the clammy months that the H.G. men took George and Hazel Bergeron's 14-year-old son Harrison away. It was tragic, all right, but George and Hazel couldn't think about it very hard. Hazel had a perfectly average intelligence, which meant she couldn't think about anything except in short bursts. And George, while his intelligence was way above normal, had a little mental handicap radio in his ear. He was required by law to wear it at all times. It was tuned to a government transmitter. Every 20 seconds or so, the transmitter would send out some sharp noise to keep people like George from taking unfair advantage of their brain. George and Hazel were watching television. There were tears on Hazel's cheeks. She'd forgotten for the moment what they were about. On the television screen were ballerinas. A buzzer sounded in George's head. His thoughts fled in panic like bandits from a burglar alarm. That was a really pretty dance, that dance they just did, said Hazel. Huh, said George. That dance, it was nice, said Hazel. Yup, said George. He tried to think a little bit about the ballerinas. They weren't really very good. No better than anybody else would have been, anyway. They, burdened, they were burdened with sash weights and bags of birdshot, and their faces were masked so that no one seeing a free and graceful gesture or a pretty face would feel like something the cat drug in. George was toying with the vague notion that maybe dancers shouldn't be handicapped, but he didn't get very far into it before another noise in his ear radio scattered his thoughts. George winced, so did two out of the eight ballerinas. Hazel saw him wince. Having no mental handicap herself, she had to ask George what the latest sound had been. Sounded like somebody hitting a milk bottle with a ball-peen hammer, said George. I think it would be real interesting hearing all the different sounds, said Hazel. A little envious. All the things they think up. Um, said George. Only if I was handicapped or general. You know what I would do, said Hazel. Hazel, as a matter of fact, bore a strong resemblance to the handicapper general. Woman di named Diana Moon Glamper. If it was Diana Moon Glamper, said Hazel, I'd have chimes on Sunday. Just chimes. Kind of in honor of religion. I could think if it was just chimes, said George. Or maybe make them real loud, said Hazel. 
I think, I think I'd make a good handicapper general. Good as anybody else, said George. Who knows better than I do what normal is, said Hazel. Right, said George. He began to think glimmeringly about his abnormal son, who was now in jail. About Harrison, but a 21-gun salute and his head stopped that. Boy, said Hazel, that was a doozy, wasn't it? It was such a doozy that George was white and trembling, and tears stood on the rim of his red eyes. Two of the eight ballerinas had collapsed to the studio floor, were holding their temples. All of a sudden, you look so tired, said Hazel. Why don't you stretch out on the sofa, so you can rest your handicap bag on the pillow, Minnie Blunt? She was referring to the 47 pounds of birdshot in a canvas bag, which was padlocks around George's neck. Go on and rest the bag for a little while, she said. I don't care if you're not equal to me for a while. George weighed the bag with his hands. I don't mind it, he said. I don't notice it anymore. It's just a part of me. You've been so tired lately, kind of wore out, said Hazel. There was just some way we could make a little hole in the bottom of the bag and just take out a few of them lead balls. Just a few. Two years in prison and two thousand dollar fine for every ball I took out, said George. I don't call that a bargain. If you could just take out a few, when you came home from work, said Hazel. I mean, you don't compete with anybody around here, you just sit around. I try to get away with it, said George, and other people to get away with it. Pretty soon we'd be right back to the Dark Ages again, with everybody competing against everybody else. You wouldn't like that, would you? I'd hate it, said Hazel. There you are, said George. The minute people start cheating on laws, what do you think happens to society? Hazel hadn't been able to come up with an answer to this question. George couldn't have supplied one. A siren was going off in his head. Reckon it'd fall apart, said Hazel. What would, said George blankly. Society, said Hazel uncertainly. Wasn't that what you just said? Who knows, said George. The television program was suddenly interrupted for a news bulletin. It wasn't clear at first as to what the bulletin was about, since the announcer, like all announcers, had a serious speech impediment. For about half a minute, and in a state of high excitement, the announcer tried to say, ladies and gentlemen. He finally gave up, handed the bulletin to a ballerina to read. That's all right, said Hazel, said of the announcer. He tried. That's the big thing. He tried to do the best he could with what God gave him. He should get a nice raise for trying so hard. Ladies and gentlemen, said the ballerina, reading the bulletin. She must have been extraordinarily beautiful because the mask she wore was hideous. It was easy to see that she was the strongest, most graceful of all the dancers, for her handicapped bags were as big as those worn by 200-pound men, and she had to apologize at once for her voice, which was very unfair voice for a woman to use. Her voice was warm and luminous, timeless melody. Excuse me, she said. She began again, making her voice absolutely uncompetitive. Harrison Bergeron, age 14, she said in a grackle squawk, has just escaped from jail, for he was held on suspicion of plotting to overthrow the government. He's a genius and an athlete. He's under handicap and should be regarded as extremely dangerous. A police photograph of Harrison Bergeron was flashed on the screen upside down, then again sideways, upside down again, then right side up. The picture showed the full length of Harrison against a background calibrated in feet and inches. He was exactly seven feet tall. The rest of Harrison's appearance was Halloween and hardware. Nobody had ever been born heavier handicapped. He had outgrown hindrances faster than the HG men could think them up. Instead of a little ear radio for a mental handicap, he wore a tremendous pair of earphones and spectacles with thick wavy lenses. The spectacles were intended to make him not only half blind but to give him a wanging headache besides. Scrap metal was hung all over him. 
Ordinarily, there was a certain symmetry, a military neatness to the handicaps issued to strong people. But Harrison looked like a walking junkyard in the race of life. Harrison carried 300 pounds, and to offset his good looks, the HG men required that he wear at all times a red rubber ball for a nose, keep his eyebrows shaved off, and covered his even white teeth with black caps at snaggletooth random. Do you see this boy, said the ballerina. Do not, I repeat, do not try to reason with him. There was a shriek of a door being torn from its hinges. Scream and barking cries of consternation came from the television set. The photograph of Harrison Bergeron on the screen jumped again and again, as though dancing to the tune of an earthquake. George Bergeron correctly identified the earthquake, and while he might have, for many was the time, his own home had danced to the same crashing tune. My God, said George, that must be Harrison. The realization was blasted from his mind instantly by the sound of an automobile collision in his head. When George could open his eyes again, the photograph of Harrison was gone. A living, breathing Harrison filled the screen, clanking, clownish, and huge. Harrison stood in the center of the studio. The knob of the, up of the uprooted studio door was still in his hand. Ballerinas, technicians, musicians, and announcers cowered on their knees before him, expecting to die. I am the Emperor, cried Harrison. Do you hear? I am the Emperor. Everybody must do what I say at once. He stamped his foot and the studio shook. Even as I stand here, he bellowed, crippled, hobbled, and sickened. I am a greater ruler than any man who ever lived. Now watch me become what I can become. Harrison tore the straps of his handicap harness like wet tissue paper. Four straps guaranteed to support 5,000 pounds. Harrison's scrap iron handicaps crashed to the floor. Harrison thrust his thumbs under the, under the bar of the padlock that secured his head harness. The bar snapped like celery. Harrison smashed his headphones and spectacles against the wall. He flung away his rubber ball nose, revealed a man that would have awed Thor, the god of thunder. I shall now select my empress, he said, looking down on the cowering people. Let the first woman who dares to rise to her feet claim her mate in her throne. A moment passed, and then again, and then a ballerina rose, swaying like a willow. Harrison plucked the mental handicap from her ear, snapped off her physical handicaps with marvelous delicacy. Last of all, he removed her mask. She was blindingly beautiful. Now, said Harrison, taking her hand, shall we show the people the meaning of the word dance? Music, he commanded. The musicians scrambled back into their chairs, and Harrison stripped them of their handicaps too. Play your best, he told them, and I'll make you barons and dukes and earls. The music began. It was normal at first, cheap, silly, false, but Harrison snatched two musicians from their chairs, waved them like batons as he sang the music as he wanted it played. He slammed them back into their chairs. The music began again and was much improved. Harrison and his empress merely listened to the music for a while, listened gravely as though synchronizing their heartbeats with it. They shifted their weights to their toes. Harrison placed his big hand on the girl's tiny waist, letting her sense the weightlessness that would soon be hers. And then in an explosion of joy and grace, into the air they sprang. Not only were the laws of the land abandoned, but the law of gravity and the laws of motion as well. They reeled, whirled, swiveled, flounced, gambled, and spun. They leaped like deer on the moon. The studio ceiling was thirty feet high, but each leap brought the dancers nearer to it. It became their obvious intention to kiss the ceiling. They kissed it, and then neutraling gravity with love and pure will. 
They remained suspended in air, inches below the ceiling, and they kissed each other for a long, long time. It was then that Diana Moon Glampers, the handicapper general, came into the studio with a double-barreled 10-gauge shotgun. She fired twice, and the Emperor and the Empress were dead before they hit the floor. Diana Moon Glampers loaded the gun again. She aimed at the musicians and told them they had ten seconds to get their handicaps back on. It was then that the Bergeron's television tube burned out. <clears throat> Hazel turned to comment about the blackout to George, but George had gone out into the kitchen for a can of beer. George came back in with the beer, paused while a handicap signal shook him up, and then he sat down again. You been crying, he said to Hazel. Yep, she said. What about, he said. I forgot, she said. Something really sad on television. What was it, he said. It's all kind of mixed up in my mind, said Hazel. Forget sad things, said George. I always do, said Hazel. That's my girl, said George. He winced. There was a sound of a riveting gun in his head. Gee, I could tell that one was a doozy, said Hazel. You can say that again, said George. Gee, said Hazel. I could tell you... <laughs> you could say that again, said George. Gee, said Hazel. I could tell that one was a doozy. <laughs> I, that was pretty good. I thought it was, you know, for a second there, I thought it was going to have a happy ending. It was quite by accident I discovered this incredible invasion of Earth by life forms from another planet. As yet, I haven't done anything about it. I can't think of anything to do. I wrote to the government, and they sent back a pamphlet on the repair and maintenance of frame houses. Anyhow, the whole thing is known. I'm not the first to discover it. Maybe it's even under control. I was sitting in my easy chair, idly turning the pages of a paperback book someone had left on the bus, when I came across the reference that first put me on the trail. For a moment I didn't respond. It took some time for the full import to sink in. After I'd comprehended, it seemed odd I hadn't noticed it right away. The reference was clearly to a non-human species of incredible properties, not indigenous to Earth, a species I hastened to point out customarily masquerading as ordinary human beings. Their disguise, however, became transparent in the face of the following observations by the author. It was at once obvious the author knew everything, knew everything and was taking it in his stride. The line, and I tremble remembering it even now, read, his eyes slowly roved about the room. Vague chills assailed me, and I tried to picture the eyes. Did they roll like dimes? The passage indicated not. They seemed to move through the air, not over the surface, rather rapidly. Apparently no one in the story was surprised. That's what tipped me off. No sign of amazement at such an outrageous thing. Later the matter was amplified. His eyes moved from person to person. There it was in a nutshell. The eyes had clearly come apart from the rest of him and were on their own. My heart pounded and my breath choked in my windpipe. I had stumbled on an accidental mention of a totally unfamiliar race, obviously non-terrestrial. Yet to the characters in the book it was perfectly natural, which suggested the belonging to the same species. And the author? A slow suspicion burned in my mind. The author was taking it rather too easily in his stride. Evidently, he felt this was quite a usual thing. He made absolutely no attempt to conceal his knowledge. The story continued. Presently, his eyes fastened on Julia. Julia, being a lady, had at least the breeding to feel indignant. She is described as blushing and knitting her brows angrily. At this I sighed with relief. They weren't all non-terrestrials, the narrative continues. Slowly, calmly, his eyes examined every inch of her. 
Great Scott, but here the girl turned and stomped off and the matter ended. I lay back in my chair, gasping with horror. My wife and family regarded me in wonder. What's wrong, dear? My wife asked. I couldn't tell her. Knowledge like this was too much for the ordinary run-of-the-mill person. I had to keep it to myself. Nothing. I gasped. I leaped up, snatched the book, and hurried out the room. In the garage, I continued reading. There was more. Trembling. I read the next revealing passage. He put his arm around Julia. Presently, she asked him if he would remove his arm. He immediately did so with a smile. It's not said what was done with the arm after the fellow had removed it. Maybe it was left standing upright in the corner. Maybe it was thrown away. I don't care. In any case, the full meaning was there, staring me right in the face. Here was a race of creatures capable of removing portions of their anatomy at will. Eyes, arms, and maybe more. Without batting an eyelash, my knowledge of biology came in handy. At this point, obviously they were simple beings, unicellular, some sort of primitive single-celled things, beings no more developed than starfish. Starfish can do the same thing, you know. I read on and came to the incredible revelation, tossed off coolly by the author without the faintest tremor. Outside the movie theater, we split up. Part of us went inside, part over to the cafe for dinner. Binary fission, obviously. Splitting in half and forming two entities. Probably each lower half went to the cafe, it being farther. And the upper halves to the movies. I read on, hands shaking. I'd really stumbled onto something here. My mind reeled as I made out the passage. I'm afraid there's no doubt about it. Poor Bibney had lost his head again, which was followed by, and Bob says he has utterly no guts, yet Bibney got around as well as the next person. The next person, however, was just as strange. He was soon described as totally lacking in brains. There was no doubt of the thing in the next passage. Julia, whom I had thought to be the one normal person, reveals herself as also being an alien life form similar to the rest. Quite deliberately, Julia had given her heart to the young man. It didn't relate what the final disposition of the organ was, but I didn't really care. It was evident Julia had gone right on living in her usual manner, like all the others in the book, without heart, arms, eyes, brains, viscera, dividing up in two people when the occasion demanded without a qualm. Thereupon she gave him her hand. I sickened. The rascal now had her hand as well as her heart. I shuddered to think what he's done with him. By this time, he took her arm, not content to wait, he had to start dismantling her on his own. Flushing crimson, I slammed the book shut and leaped to my feet, but not in time to escape one last reference to those carefree bits of anatomy whose travel had originally thrown me on the track. Her eyes followed him all the way down the road and across the meadow. I rushed from the garage back inside the warm house as if the accursed things were following me. My wife and children were playing Monopoly in the kitchen. I joined them and played with frantic fervor. Brow feverish, teeth chattering. I had had enough of the thing. I want to hear no more about it. Let them come on. Let them invade Earth. I don't want to get mixed up in it. I have absolutely no stomach for it. The New Food by Stephen Leacock I see from the current columns of the Daily Press that Professor Plum of the University of Chicago has just invented a highly concentrated form of food. All the essential nutritive elements are put together in the form of pellets, each of which contains from one to a hundred times as much nourishment as an ounce of ordinary article of diet. These pellets, diluted with water, will form all that is necessary to support life. The professor looks forward confidently to revolutionizing the present food system. Now this kind of thing may be all very well in its way, but it is going to have its drawbacks as well. In the bright future anticipated by Professor Plum, 
We can easily imagine such incidences of the following. A smiling family will gather round the hospitable board. The table is plenteously laid with a soup plate in front of each beaming child, a bucket of hot water before the radiant mother, and at the head of the board the Christmas dinner of the happy home, warmly covered by a thimble and resting on a poker chip. The expectant whispers of the little ones were hushed as the father, rising from his chair, lifted the thimble, disclosed a small pile of concentrated nourishment on the chip. Before him, Christmas turkey, cranberry sauce, plum pudding, mince pie, it was all there, all jammed into that little pill, only waiting to expand. Then the father, with deep reverence and a devout eye, alternating between the pill and heaven, lifted his voice in benediction. At this moment, there was an agonized cry from the mother. Oh, Henry, quick, baby has snatched the pill. It was too true. Dear little Gustav Adolphus, the golden-haired baby boy, who grabbed the whole Christmas dinner off the poker chip, and bolted it. Three hundred and fifty pounds of concentrated nourishment passed down the esophagus of the unthinking child. Clap him on the back, cried the distracted mother. Give him water. The idea was fatal. The water striking the pill caused it to expand. There was a dull rumbling sound. Then with an awful bang, Gustavus Adolphus exploded into fragments. And when they gathered the little corpse together, the baby's lips were parted in a lingering smile. It could only be worn by a child who had eaten thirteen Christmas dinners.